Morning. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. Good morning. Anyone know what show that's from? Shout it out if you know. Chef's Table! For those who know me personally, you'll know that you don't get very far in a conversation with me without me talking about Chef's Table, the Enneagram, or bodily fluids. And maybe all three of those things will surface today. Sorry, not sorry. That clip is from a show called Chef's Table. It's on Netflix, if any of you have stolen a subscription from Andrew and Corey, like my husband and I have for the last five years. And Chef's Table is this beautifully filmed show. Um, It has amazing cinematography. It's this beautiful storytelling of the world's top chefs. So whoever decides that uh, by whatever criteria that this restaurant is the best restaurant in the world, this is the top chef, they go deeper into their stories. And uh, I know that clip was really fast and it's hard to get a bit more of it, but that was Francis Malman and he's an Argentinian chef and he cooks in and on the landscape of Patagonia. And so the rest of that episode of Chef's Table are these epic views of mountains and smoke and meat on steaks, like steaks, uh, being roasted over fires. So it's not vegan friendly at all, at all. Um, And this man, I'm just gonna reread the quote that we just heard what he said. He said, All these things in my life made me dream there was a very free world somewhere. So my big draw in life since very young was freedom. Freedom of believing only in myself and not letting myself be, you know, led by anybody. I wanted to be my own. I wanted to do whatever I wanted. Now on the one hand, what a romantic sentiment that is, especially when you have a little man peddling wine glasses to your boat in the middle of Patagonia. Sounds like a delightful life. But there's something really terrifying about what he's saying. It's something that our culture worships is this romantic individualism, this idea that we can become in some way our own gods in the craft, in the industry that we master, that we can be the best And as my husband and I watch this show a lot, sometimes we psychoanalyze these guys. We're like, oh my gosh, they need therapy. Like, they are egomaniacs. But what I love about Francis Malman is that I identify with him a lot, if I'm really honest with myself. And there's something about this psalm that I want us to dig into today uh, that is very hard to digest, is our own vanity and our own egoism And what happens to us when we get a bloated sense of self? And what do the Psalms have to say about that? And I think this specific Psalm for me has hit like right in the heart of that. And there's this word that you might not hear in everyday conversation called vainglory. Has anyone heard the word vainglory? You win at life, one or two people. Vainglory. 
It sounds like sort of a word that would be tossed around in Lord of the Rings, but not in Providence every day. Vainglory is inordinate pride in oneself or one's achievements, excessive vanity. And this is what this psalm gets at. Vainglory is something that I actually really struggle with. So this morning's sermon is pretty vulnerable for me, um, so I hope that you will bear with me, is I'm sort of putting out there to you some of my deep, deepest, darkest stuff, um, because that is where God has been transforming my life lately, and God has been transforming it through this psalm. I actually want to skip to the psalm for a second on the screen. I think you have it on one of those slides, just to read it again, and then we'll keep going. Psalm 131, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. If you have your Bibles or iPhones, I would recommend flipping to Psalm 131 right now just so that you can have it open because I'll be digging in, diving in, and going back to it a lot this morning. So this psalm performs something that, uh, a phrase that I picked up from a, a writer that I really admire, Lauren Winner, it's called dislocated exegesis. That makes me sound really smart to say that this morning. Dislocated exegesis, what does it mean? It is when we say the words of scripture in a context that directly confounds them. So dislocated, meaning it's in the wrong order. It's in a place it maybe shouldn't be. And exegesis is the process of expelling upon, expounding upon scripture, explaining it. And this concept, a couple examples is if you were to read scriptures about welcoming the foreigner out loud in a deportation office. What would that do to the setting around you and the people around you? Or another example of this concept is going to death row and reading scriptures about freeing the prisoner and freeing the captives. There's something really unnerving about reading God's word in a context that totally violates it. And when I read this psalm, the context is my heart and it violates my heart. Because when I read those words, I do not nod along with the author and say, yeah, my heart is not lifted up. I don't think of things that are too important for me. Actually, in the last season of my life, I would read every line of that psalm and be like, I am the exact opposite of that psalm. Are you guys following me? This idea that God actually, through the psalms, can sometimes say exactly who we are not. And who we want to be is that psalm. And so we need to read it again and again and again and ask God, God, would you change my heart? I want to share with you Eugene Peterson's translation of this psalm. And I put in little quotes my commentary on it. So let's read this together. It's just a different translation of the same psalm. God, I am not trying to rule the roost. Yes, I am. I don't want to be king of the mountain. Yeah, I do. I haven't meddled where I have no business. Oh, yes, I totally have. Or fantasized grandiose plans. Yep, done that. 
I've kept my feet on the ground, but actually really I haven't. (laughs) I've cultivated a quiet heart. My heart is anything but quiet. Like a baby content in its mother's arms, my soul is a baby content. I could not be farther from content. Wait, Israel, for God. Wait with hope. Hope now and hope always. God, I don't trust you enough to wait. I would say that that translation and that commentary describes where God's been taking me, uh, probably through the winter and the spring of this year. And I was reflecting on it. There's a reason I haven't preached since August of last year. I was like, oh, when's the last time I preached at Sanctuary? And it's not because Andrew hasn't asked me multiple times. Um, But to be honest, it's because God has been doing a work inside my heart uh, that required me to be away from a stage and required um, me to stop projecting false parts of who I was for like the last nine months. Um, And coincidentally, my husband and I got pregnant and that's a great way to enter into selflessness is like the slow journey towards bringing another human into the world. So it's been a wild ride and I wanna tell you a bit of that story. I can't share all the details, but here's a little bit of it. Uh, A couple months ago, I became overcome with an emotion that dominated my life day in and day out. And that emotion was jealousy. Jealousy is something that I think we all feel, but we don't always talk about because it's just an embarrassing emotion to feel. Uh, There were a couple people who I dearly love and I really respect. And in my circles and in my mind, they started getting more attention than me in the workplace They started having access to places that I didn't have access and they started getting more influence than I had. And I became totally obsessively racked with jealousy about what was happening in their lives that I perceived wasn't happening in my life. And so I don't know if you can relate to this, but I would wake up in the morning and I would be brushing my teeth, thinking and overanalyzing words that were exchanged with them, conversations we had, conversations that never happened but were a figment of my imagination and were happening, and I would feel like the anxiety and stress in the back of my shoulders while I'm brushing my teeth, like waking up literally in anger and frustration and jealousy. And it got so bad that I couldn't even be in their presence. I would see them at different events and I did not even wanna talk to them or be near them. That's how this jealousy took over my heart. I began obsessively reading into what people were saying. I don't know if you've ever done this, where you're like, oh, they're probably talking about me. Or the way that they said that must mean that they think I'm somehow immature. Or it just runs away with you. Um, I became personally offended that I was not being consulted in matters I thought I was entitled to. Friends, it was exhausting. Utterly, physically, emotionally, spiritually exhausting to entertain these thoughts in my heart and in my body. And to be frank, I was really embarrassed that I was having these feelings at all. I've been a Christian for maybe 12 or 13 years. I would expect that by now I would get the whole maturity thing in Christ, that I would get excited when other people got promotions, not get petty. I was so humiliated that I could not get over that the success of others was drowning out my own success perceived. Why couldn't I be happy for them? And why couldn't I celebrate their accomplishments? 
I think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes there are things that we feel that we're really ashamed to be feeling, and we wish we were cooler than that, frankly. But we're not, (laughs) and we do feel them. There's something that we need from God to be released from that. And I realized I was being childish. I'm an adult woman, married for a couple years, kid on the way. I was acting like a toddler, having a tantrum over the success of other people. And then God brought this psalm to my view. And he taught me there's a huge difference between childishness and childlikeness. Are you with me? There's a huge difference in our hearts when we are childish, but God actually wants us to be childlike. And that's a posture that we need to have in order to come into contact with him and to know him more. But we cannot get the two confused because they're very different. So I wanna go back to the text and I wanna bring you with me through what God's been teaching me through this text. So you can put the NIV version back on the screen. And you can have it in front of you, Psalm 131. So most theologians, most uh, researchers would agree that David, King David, probably wrote this psalm. Um, He's the author of most of them. And this would fall, so in our Gospel and Blues series, this would fall as a gospel psalm, right? It's this actually uplifting psalm about righteousness. He's describing his heart posture, and it's beautiful. I did not experience this psalm as a gospel psalm because it cut right to my heart but it is this sort of uplifting psalm about his posture towards God. And there's a couple theories around why he would have written this psalm. So some of you know that David was God's uh, chosen one to be a king and was a man after God's own heart. And so some people would posit that this psalm is written sort of as a response to his critics who might've said, hey, you have so much influence, so much ambition, you must be a proud person and you must be trying to climb social ladders. And he's saying to God, God, you know that's not my heart. That is not my heart at all. I am actually approaching you with humility. And David can say that. I can't say that, but David can say that. So the psalm is really conveniently broken up into three verses with three quick themes. And the first one is about pride. And it's about how he's not proud, but you see when I read this during this last season of my life, it described exactly the opposite of what was going on in my heart. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. In this little section, you see it says me, my, myself, I, like six different times. The Psalm starts with how do we enter in our posture towards God? What is our, how do we view ourselves in light of who God is? And pride is when we have a bloated view of ourselves. We think of ourselves and we overvalue ourselves. I know a lot of you don't deal with this, so this is a little vulnerable, um, but some of you might. Some of you might deal with pride and you overvalue yourself. The way you think about yourself is that you're pretty cool and you've got your life pretty together. And that slowly spins into undervaluing other people. And other people become tools to make you feel better about yourself when actually you are called to serve and submit to other people. There's something that comes with pride. So if you do the opposite, if your heart is proud, if you do think about things that are really way too magnificent for you, you start to feel restless with your life. And I don't think we need one more sermon about our Instagram feeds and our Facebook profiles, but we do live in a generation of self-curation. 
And we become restless that we are not having the life of that person who I follow and that person who I follow whose life looks so beautiful, so aesthetically pleasing all the time. There's something about there's something about the relationship between the pride of how we see ourselves and how we will or will not connect with God. Is that if you see yourself as this high, you're not going to be able to hear from the God of the universe. Part of being human is recognizing that we're actually very, very small. And the amazing thing about God is he loves us in our smallness. Don't hear from this sermon that I'm saying your life isn't that important. This is a corrective for those of you who think you're too important is that actually we're one in billions and our lives are here and they're gone in a second. And God wants us to have a proper view of ourselves. And David has that view, even though he is a king with tons of influence and has every reason to be super prideful. He is like 10 Francis Malmans from the chef's table clip. He has every reason to have a really bloated sense of self. And even he, with all of his ambition, can say that I don't think about myself more highly than I ought to. That is really admirable, and I want that. (laughs) I really want that. There's a, a couple places in scripture where God continues this theme. In the book of James, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. In Philippians, it says that even Jesus, who was God, did not consider taking his status as God to manipulate people. He was humble, even though he was the son of God and was God. And I love this. In Romans, it says to live in harmony with each other. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. See, what happens when pride takes over your life is that you start to curate who you're going to hang out with and who you're going to be around. And for me, what started to happen is I wanted to be in what I perceived was this inner circle, And I wanted to be making decisions that influenced people. And God always says the way to be someone of influence is actually to get out to the people who are different, who smell, who are not as aesthetically pleasing and won't fit perfectly into your Instagram feed. Will you love people who are awkward and talk for a really long time and exhaust you? Will you hang out with them and serve them? Because if you wanna be over here making decisions of influence, you better be over here washing feet, right? That's the Lord's heart. So that we be people who are not so conceited that we cannot love and hang out with the least of these, not as a tool, (laughs) as the people where Jesus is. Jesus is there. He might be here in the pool of influence, but he really tells us again and again he's there with the person experiencing homelessness. He's there with the person who is oppressed. And pride says, I'm too important for you. My time is too precious. I have other places to be. And I'm ashamed to confess that definitely was my heart this spring. I have other places to be. The psalm continues. And he talks about a weaned child. So I thought, how typical of the pregnant woman to be preaching about a weaned baby and a mother. Um, But I don't know much about weaned children because I'm still at the beginning of this journey. So you have a baby, you feed the baby. Many mothers choose through nursing. And then there comes a time when the child needs to be weaned. 
And there's a, it's a metaphor that's important for us to pay attention to because he says it twice. And we know in scripture when things are said twice, we need to pay attention to it. A weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child, I'm content. So there's something that will battle our pride and that is having the posture of a weaned child. So what is that? Little history for the people who were hearing this psalm in ancient Israel, mothers typically nursed a child for two to three years. So a recently weaned child isn't an infant anymore, but it's still not independent of its mom. It's not walking around going grocery shopping. The weaned child will be less fussy, and the child in this psalm is apparently not in a terrible twos kind of phase. This child is content and calm. It's not a colicky, fractious baby that's crying for its mother's milk. It's a baby that can relate to its mother in a new way. And I talked to a couple of the moms in our community who have far more wisdom than I, and they sort of echoed this, that when, once you wean your child, there's a way that they're content with you, and you get to, like, smile and interact and laugh with them. They're still totally dependent on you, but it's a slightly more mature part of the relationship. You're not needing to constantly reassure them every second. They are fulfilled, they have had their fill of you in that way. There's a lot we can learn about that posture with God and how many of us can say we have that posture with God, that we don't constantly need God, God's reassurance, am I okay, am I okay, am I okay? But to have the posture of a weaned child to say, I can sit with the Lord and receive from him all that I need. In him I am fulfilled, I'm content. And I'm not constantly distracted looking around, I'm with him sitting with him, enjoying his presence. I love that the psalm says that. And I think that kind of a posture, that understanding, God, I'm totally dependent on you, it combats the pride problem. Because pride says, I don't need anyone, I'm very important. And a weaned child is like, actually, I just wanna spend time with you because you're my mom. There's the motherly aspect of God that we overlook so often that this hits on. And when I was in the throes of all of this sort of inner turmoil in the last couple months, I really longed for this peace from God. I can't tell you how much I wanted it and how disgusted I was with my own heart, but I couldn't get it on my own. I couldn't go and read a bunch of Bible verses and hope that it would just happen. I needed to soak in the presence of God and let his peace wash over me. The psalmist writes, I've stilled and quieted my soul. And another translation of that says, I've cultivated a quiet heart. Do we know what it means to cultivate a quiet heart? That takes work. How many of you feel distracted in your everyday? Even now, you're thinking about what beach you're gonna go to after church, you're thinking about what kind of lunch, how are you gonna navigate family time tomorrow, whatever it is. We do not know how to cultivate a quiet heart. And yet that is so important to the psalmist that his whole identity is founded in being able to sit still with the Lord and to sit still in humility. I'm preparing for a big moment in my life and part of that is daily time in silence and in calm. And I have these kind of trippy meditations on an app that are like baby meditations. It's like, imagine your baby making its way. I won't, I won't go much further, I promise. <laughs> like, all is calm, all is well. 
I bet it makes you laugh, Chris, because he comes in the room, he's like, okay. I'm just sitting there zened out with this baby meditation. But we need to cultivate quietness in ourselves. This is something, when I play those meditations, in my mind, I'm like an athlete getting ready, except I can't do that right now because I will pant heavily and fall over. I'm not jumping and physically exercising. I'm mentally exercising and getting ready for the birth of my baby. And I'm going through and visualizing what this experience is gonna be like over and over and over again. Because there's something that fights us all the time. It's the distractedness in our own heart. We are like fractious, colicky newborns with the Lord. We do not know how to sit in his presence. And so part of what I hope you take away from this morning is it takes time to cultivate a quiet heart. It takes practice, like a marathon that you're training for, to learn how to say to your heart, I don't need to think about those people right now. I don't need to think about this problem. That's childlikeness instead of childishness. Childishness is throwing internal tantrums, letting people get the best of you, putting your identity in where other people are and the success that they're getting. And childlikeness is shedding all of that and saying, God, I need you. I need you even to be quiet. I need you. And then finally, the author pivots and he talks about hope. And he pivots from this sort of very individual, me, my relationship with you, God, to all of Israel. And he says, Israel, you can hope in the Lord. You can trust in the Lord. Because I know as someone who is not proud and filled with grandiose ideas of myself, I know as someone who has intimacy and quiet times with the Lord that God will come through. And so whatever you're going through, you can put your hope in the Lord. There was this beautiful quote from a poet that really anchored me in this season. And he writes, be at peace with all that remains unsolved in your heart. Be at peace with all that remains unsolved in your heart. This psalm doesn't give us a lot of answers about life, but it does say you can be at peace. You can put your hope in the Lord. This is the pathway to trust, is to get the right view of yourself to calm and quiet yourself and hear from him and to trust him with whatever it is that you're going through. This psalm became a prayer language for me. So part of the reason we're doing this series and why Andrew has asked all of us to share how these are hitting us personally is that we spend time in the psalms. And so this psalm, I didn't read it once and I was over this jealousy, not at all. This is actually been a place where I've had to bathe. And like Andrew said last week, he gave us the metaphor of a lion growling over its food. It's very weird for a vegan pastor to give such an intense metaphor. Um, But this idea that we would growl over the Psalms, that we would look at these words and say, these are the words of life. And so for me, this Psalm, I had to read it over and over and over again to understand and to let God change my heart through it. And sometimes God's going to use the Psalms in your life to give you a picture of exactly where you are not and exactly where you are missing the mark. And that is very hard to receive. But the goodness of God is that he loves you enough to show you your blind spots. And he loves you enough to sit with you and say, my love, why are you so upset about the success that others are having? Don't you know I love you? Don't you know that I am enough? 
and that you can trust me with your life, you can trust me with your career, you can trust me with your influence, that actually white knuckling it and trying to make it happen isn't gonna work. That might be the way that the world goes about it, but that's not the way that we as Christians are called to go about it. We're actually called to submit the whole thing and surrender it to the Lord. Whatever it is, I don't know what it is for you this morning. It could be your marriage. It could be your, your role in your industry. It could be in your circle of friends, you're feeling left out. God is calling you to trust him and to surrender that to him, to know that he is totally faithful. And you know what was beautiful about this whole process for me? Is that I could be honest with God about my heart. As embarrassed as I was to be experiencing jealousy in such a childish way, I could be honest with God. And I knew that when I told him, he wouldn't scoff at me, but he would just love me. He would take it and say, oh, Aaron, I know. I know, and I wanna iron out this whole area in your life if you'll just let me do it. And so here's how God did it. A couple of things. <laughs> I meditated on this psalm a lot. I wrote it in places, I calligraphied it, I um, read it in the mornings, I read it in the evenings. Every time I felt that anxiety coming up about these people and all this junk, I read it again. I picked up a book about jealousy and I read it very slowly. I'm still not done with it. It's one chapter at a time. I learned how to ask the questions behind the thing. Why am I so not okay with these people having success? Why does their success threaten mine? Why do I feel the need to be competitive with everyone? And God started to reveal, it's because you're vain. It's like, oh, cool. It's like, yeah, it's actually because you think a lot about yourself, and I don't really know where you got that idea, but you're just one human, I'm like, oh. <laughs> Vain glory. And then my mom, and you know sometimes only moms can say the thing that everyone else has been saying, but your mom says it, and you're like, yes, it's true. My mom sent me this email in the middle of the season, and it was a very long email, because if you know my mother, you know. Uh, but a little bit of it said, Aaron, cease from striving. Surrender. Allow God to open doors for you. And don't assume that any position is or was for you. Humble yourself before God and humble yourself before those in authority over you. He loves you. Let him cease from striving. Let him pour in his Holy Spirit, the oil that soothes and heals our wounds. It's a good mom. It's a good email. And I started to open that email every time I felt that vomit of jealousy rising in me. Guys, why do we strive for the life we think we deserve when we have a God who wants to give us the life he has planned for us? Why do we do that? We do it in so many things, and we really do try to white-knuckle our way into the world to make a name or a legacy, or I want them to say this at my funeral. Like, throw all of that out. God does not want you to keep striving. He really wants you to abide and rest and trust, and that is scary. It is very scary for me to release the next season of my life to God, because what that means for me is I have a baby on the way, I'm returning to work part-time. I don't really know what my ministry will look like next spring. 
There's a lot of surrender there of having no idea where this is going. When prior, it just felt like influence was expanding, success was happening, and then God has brought me to this place of total surrender. And that's really scary. But I am trusting the words that he says over and over again in scripture, which is those that lay down their life will find it. He doesn't say those that meticulously plan and aggressively fight for their life will find it. He doesn't say that. So today, where are you striving to make it on your own? Is there a conflict in your life that you're waking up brushing your teeth obsessing over? Are there conversations you can't get out of your head because maybe you do have a slightly bloated view of yourself? You need to come down a step this morning. We all wrestle with things we're embarrassed to say that we feel out loud. But the good news is that God is so kind and he is so gentle. And today I want you to face whatever that thing was. Just let us in the beginning of service with what is it that is the barrier between you and God? And the Psalms are this wonderful balm that God uses to heal those places in us and get the barrier out of the way so that there's greater intimacy on the other end of it. I think that all of us can actually have that deep sense of contentment today if we're willing to surrender to him. And so I'm gonna invite the team back up as we enter into just closing out our service. And the way I wanna do this is there's a prayer that really struck me uh, in the Book of Common Prayer, and it's a prayer against vainglory, that word we brought up today. And I want us to read it together. There's going to be bolded parts that you read with me, and then I'll read the other parts. It'll be pretty clear. And after that, I'm going to play a song for you, and it's a song um, that many of my friends will roll their eyes because I play it a lot. Um, but it's a song that spoke to me during this season of life, and it's uh, Vivaldi's Spring One movement from Four Seasons, and Max Richter's a composer who's recomposed Vivaldi's work. And this song to me, uh, the way that it swells just reminds me of the love of God and the hope that there is for us who are stuck in pride and stuck in vanity, that there's actually a way of freedom. Let us hope Israel. We can hope forevermore that God is faithful and he's going to free us from ourselves. And so we're gonna pray this prayer together right now and then we're just gonna sit in silence during the song and whatever work you need to do in your heart with the Lord, do it now. Now is your time to receive from him and then the team will lead us from there. So let's pray this prayer. Why don't we stand to pray this prayer together and close? So in bold, we'll read together. Once again, Lord Jesus Christ, we face the power of vainglory. Against the torrent of oblivion, we plead the blood of Jesus. Together, when we are praised for the good you have done in us, help us to praise your goodness and remember the sin that keeps us from praising you without ceasing. When we long for others to know how much we are suffering for you, humble us before the cross and overwhelm our spirits with your unsurpassable love. When we imagine the great things we might do for you, give us small things to do by the power of your great love and grant us strength to do them. Deliver us from vain glory that we might not be handed over to pride or sadness 
but ascend by your little way to the humility in which our joy may be complete. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner.